You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 10. We'll be looking at Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31. And while you're turning there, just want to acknowledge what a privilege it is always to preach God's Word, but to uh, give Sam four weeks here to uh, prepare for Genesis is... Um, an honor, and uh, I, I think we express our gratitude uh, to him uh, far too infrequently for uh, preaching God's word faithfully week in and week out uh, for 13 years now. Uh, so just wanted to take opportunity to say thank you, Sam, for all that you do as uh, we prepare for four weeks here in uh, in the book of Hebrews, and uh, just encourage you to join me in uh, praying for Sam as he prepares for Genesis, and uh, I think we're all excited for uh, all that that means. Hebrews ten twenty six through 31 For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the fourth warning passage in the book of Hebrews. Uh, the author of Hebrews desires to encourage these, these Christians to persevere in their faith, to cling to Christ in the midst of doubt in the midst of discouragement and in the midst of uh, even persecution. And he has basically two main tactics uh, that he uses to do this, to encourage them. The, the first tactic he uses is just, just to describe the majestic glory of Jesus Christ. Uh, but the second tactic or the secondary approach that he has is in light of all that Jesus is, in light of Christ's great supremacy, he, does, he, he brings out here for the fourth time the insanity and the danger of rejecting him. And a big question that often comes as we read a passage like this is, is this describing uh, a Christian who loses their salvation? Can Christians lose their salvation? Is the author of Hebrews trying to warn us here uh, in a way that would say, uh, hey, Christian believer, you just better be careful and stop that sinning that you're doing. You just might lose your salvation if you don't. God might take it away from you. Is that what the author of Hebrews is doing? If you're a Christian, you cannot lose your salvation. I'd refer you back to uh, when we looked at... Uh, a similar passage in, in Hebrews 6 and to numerous other resources that 
uh, explained the clear teaching of Scripture is that God does not fumble when he saves a sinner. You cannot lose your salvation. But if that's the case, then what is this text saying? What, what, is, the, what is the message the author of Hebrews wants us to have here? And, and to allow this passage to be clear in our mind, I'd like to break it down into three questions. So first, who is the person described in this warning? Secondly, what is this person doing? And third, what should this person expect? And then in light of the answers to those questions, what should we do? What should we do? So who is the person described in this warning? Notice how the author begins here in verse verse 26, for if we go on sinning. So the author here isn't talking about them. He's not talking about people outside. He's talking about us. He's addressing believers. And he doesn't even say uh, to you all, he includes himself here. He doesn't say if you go on sinning. He says if we go on sinning. So he is making a statement here about the church. It's the same we that you see up in verse 19 when he refers to these Christians as, as brothers. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have, have confidence. So the person answer the question, who are we talking about here? This, this person is someone who is or could be part of the church. The person is also, though, if you look at verse, continue to look at verse 26, it's someone who's received Christian truth claims. It says, if, we're, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, Knowledge of a truth. That is a phrase that's just meant to communicate the gospel. It's, 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 it's someone who has received Christian truth centered on the person and work of Jesus. This is the same phrase Paul uses in 1 Timothy 2.4 when he describes God as the one who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth is the Christian message of of salvation. So the person being described here is someone who could be part of the church, and also it's someone who has received the message of, of salvation. And then finally, if you look at verse 29, we get some more details about this person. This is someone who has experienced at least some level of sanctification or some kind of sanctification. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? The word sanctified means to be consecrated. It means to be set apart. Uh, the word sanctified, or the word that's the translated sanctified here is often used to modify uh, God the Spirit. So at the, at the end of verse 29, you see God the Spirit is called the Spirit of Grace, but often in Scripture, uh, He is called the Holy Spirit. But that could just as easily be translated the Sanctified Spirit. So sanctified means holy. It means to be made holy. And this is why Christians are called saints in the New Testament. You can even hear it in the, the root of the English word, saint and sanctified. So this person is someone who has some degree of sanctification. This is someone who has some experience with the Holy Spirit. 
The question is, and the really important question is, well, what kind of experience with the Holy Spirit? And the first place to look for some help answering that question would be back to Hebrews 6, where we have uh, someone, or this, this same type of person, probably, being described uh, in these words, in Hebrews 6, 4 and 5. This is someone who has been enlightened, someone who has tasted the heavenly gift, someone who has shared in the Holy Spirit, someone who has tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. So I made the case in Hebrews 6 that although those words in Hebrews 6 seem to describe a Christian, it could also describe someone who's very close to Christianity but not truly converted. Someone who spends time in close proximity with Christians. Someone who frequently moves in circles where the Holy Spirit is at work. Places like Christian churches. Places like Christian homes. This would be someone like who Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 7.14, the, the unbelieving spouse. Right, where Paul writes, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Now, they're not Christians. They're, they're unbelieving, but there's some degree of holiness that they experience. Or this could be someone like Judas, who lived and did ministry alongside Jesus himself for years, and yet he proved to be an unbeliever. Most of the time when we talk about sanctification, we're talking about something that takes place uh, in believers, uh, and that's the way the Bible normally describes it. However, there is a kind of sanctification that takes place amongst someone who perhaps makes a profession of faith, someone who is baptized, someone who even joins a local church, someone who is part of the we that the author is writing to here. Someone who takes in and receives Christian doctrine. Someone who receives a knowledge of the truth, but it is not a sanctification of being made holy from the inside. It is not a transformation of the heart. It is not the saving sanctification that comes from the Christian's union with, with Christ. So this person is someone who could be part of the church, this is a person who has come to a knowledge of salvation. This is, this is a person who has been in close proximity to the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and in that sense, this is someone who could be any one of us. But this is not someone who is truly converted. This is someone who can, I suppose in one sense, lose their salvation, but in only the sense of because they never truly had it to, to begin with. So recognizing who this person is, now what is this person doing, secondly? What is this person doing? This person, to put it simply, is, is committing apostasy. The meaning of the word apostasy is to turn away from a relationship or from an authority. So if you're an apostate, you're somebody who has abandoned a relationship or you've abandoned some kind of authority over you. So apostasy in Christianity, it means abandoning your faith. It means repudiating your beliefs and your convictions regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. It's described here in verse 26 as being characterized by persistent and ongoing sin. Right? If we go on 
sinning. The, the verb there communicates uh, continuous, ongoing action, similar to maybe what John describes in 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. So it's an ongoing pattern of engaging in sin. It's also deliberate and intentional sin, we see in verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately, the Bible describes different types of sin. If you go and uh, you can read about in Numbers 15, uh, in, in the law, Moses differentiates between um, uh, what is translated in some of our English translations, unintentional sins versus high-handed sins. And that word unintentional is, 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 I would assume it's a difficult word to translate because obviously all sin is some degree intentional. Uh, you don't accidentally ever sin. However, in, in the same way that we could, we could differentiate, differentiate between first-degree murder and second-degree murder, there are different levels of consciousness as we break God's law, as we sin against Him. And so a deliberate sin, deliberate, intentional sin, is more closely associated with apostasy. Jesus describes apostasy in the, in the parable of the, of the sower, right? Where you have one seed which, which falls on the, the path and it never shows any signs of life. You have the fourth seed which falls into good soil and it bears fruit. But there's two other kinds of seed that show signs of life but then fade away. They never take root. They never bring forth fruit. So starting to answer the question, what is this person doing? This person, this is a person who is committing apostasy. This is someone who is turning away from Jesus Christ and turning to, toward or to something else, evidenced in or characterized by persistent ongoing sin and deliberate, intentional, willful Sin, But we have more details about this person again in verse, verse 29. This is a person who is doing three things. This is someone who is trampling, profaning, and insulting. Trampling, profaning, and insulting. Verse 29, this is a person who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Just think how vivid and how strong that language is. According to Psalm 110 that the author of Hebrews has, has referenced uh, a couple times already, according to Psalm 110, the Messiah is, is the one who is, it's, the, it's promised to the Messiah that his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. But this person is someone who deliberately rejects Christ, seeking to trample Christ under his own feet. Apostasy today uh, is sometimes characterized as a, as a humble uh, act, an, an innocent act. Uh, so one of the ways it's described today is deconstruction. And, and deconstruction today, people say things like, I just had to be honest with myself. That sounds pretty innocent, right? Uh, I, I just started to question things that you know, aren't supposed to be questioned. And people even rationalize it by placing themselves in the role of of a victim. You know, I, start, I decided to stop being who people told me to be. Or I decided to stop believing things just because and figure out what was true for myself. Now, both of those two things could be good. I mean, you shouldn't 
be someone just because someone tells you you should be a particular way, or you shouldn't believe something just because someone told you to believe. But to self-cast yourself as, as a victim as you, as you deconstruct is something that God will not, not allow you to do. God describes apostasy. He describes deconstruction here, or whatever you want to call it. He describes it as a violent act. It is a trampling underfoot of the Son of God. Second, besides trampling, it's also a profaning. The person is one who has profaned the blood of the covenant. The word translated profane here, it, 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 it carries the idea of, of, of casting some kind of judgment, of, of making some kind of, uh, of, of decision. So a translation that, that might communicate this is it's someone who has judged the blood of the covenant to be of very little value. In the Old Testament law, there's, there's much tension, attention given to the, the clean and the unclean, or the holy and the common, and, and this is somebody who has considered the holy blood of the new covenant to be like common blood. But the only hope of Christians, the only hope of Christians is that the blood of the covenant is not common blood. It's that the blood of the covenant is of infinite value. Sinners who are guilty before an eternal God, who deserve an eternal punishment, they can only be restored and forgiven if there is infinitely valuable blood that's offered in our place. There is only one way for fallen human beings to have confidence to return to the presence of God, and it's not by the blood of bulls and goats, as the author of Hebrews put it. But up in verse 19, what does he say? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. His blood is the blood of the new covenant. This is not just any blood. This is not common blood. This is infinitely valuable blood. And those who apostatize profane the blood of the covenant as they judge it to be valueless blood as they trample underfoot the Son of God. It is a sin to fail to value as little that which is most valuable. And then third, besides trampling and profaning, this person is also insulting. Verse 29, the, the person is one who has outraged, it says, outraged the spirit of grace, which could also be translated, uh, insulted the spirit of, of grace. So what does it mean to insult or outrage the, the Holy Spirit? It means to resist the work of the Holy Spirit. It means to encounter the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, the Spirit who points fallen sinners to the only hope of life, which is Christ, but then to resist that work, to look away, to re resist the work of the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin, to look away from the righteousness of Christ, to rebel in spite of the judgment that's promised by the Spirit. This is what Jesus describes as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. For example, in Mark 3, 29, where he says, For whoever, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. The reason blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is an eternal sin 
is because there is no hope of eternal life apart from the work of the Spirit. There's no other options. There's no other route to Christ but by the way that the Spirit guides us and directs us. So if you resist the Holy Spirit, you forfeit any hope of being made holy. If you resist the work of the Holy Spirit, you forfeit any possibility of being united to all of the blessings of being united with Christ. The Puritan John Owen puts it this way. He says, The actual crucifixion of Christ opened the way. It opened the way for mercy and grace to be communicated to men by the Spirit. But these apostates, having rejected even the work and grace of the Spirit, had no further door of mercy and grace open to them. So what is this person doing? This person is committing apostasy. It is willing, deliberate engagement with sin. And in doing so, after receiving a knowledge of the truth and after sharing to a degree, at least some degree, of the Holy Spirit, this person is trampled underfoot the Son of God, considered common, the infinitely valuable blood of the covenant, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. And in light of who this person is, what should this person expect? What should he expect? In the words of verse 26, what remains for such a person? A particular kind of fearful judgment is what remains. Verse 27, such a person should expect a fearful expectation of judgment. Human beings spend so much time thinking of all that could happen. And and we spend a lot of time in fear of things that aren't even real imminent threats, right? Uh, How many of us are are far too often gripped by the fearful expectation of, of a health crisis or the fearful expectation of death or the fearful expectation of rejection from somebody or a group of people or the fearful expectation of a financial crisis or the fearful expectation of political politically unfavorable circumstances or war or famine or plague and on and on and sometimes these are legitimate threats sometimes there are uh, there, there are reasons to be concerned about those things. But, but even more often, we live in fearful expectation of those things when they're not even imminently threatening us. But the person who commits apostasy lives every day with the certainty of one thing, and that is the fearful judgment of God. And why is it fearful? Well, look how it's described in verse 27 a fearful expectation of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's already so vivid. It, 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 it doesn't need further explanation. Consumption in the fires of judgment. And so to drive this point home, the The author of Hebrews points to a biblical example in verses 28 and 29, and then a theological example in in verse 30. So let's look at the biblical example here first, 28 and 29. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who apostatizes? The penalty under the law of Moses was earthly death. The penalty under the new covenant is eternal death. And the, the, the biblical principle here is that the penalties are proportional to the crime committed, I suppose you could say. The penalties are, are proportional. So, so the, the penalty is proportional to the level of revelation that has been rejected. So rejecting natural revelation, God's revelation of himself in nature, and, and rejecting God's revelation of himself and of his commands in the law, that results in a kind of judgment. That also results in in judgment, but rejecting the supreme revelation of God. The supreme revelation of God in Jesus Christ, who is described as being full of grace and truth. The the rejecting of that person results in greater judgment. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 83, it's the exact same question in the Baptist Catechism, question 88, it, it reads like this. Are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? In other words, it's asking, are, some, are, are all sins the same or are some sins worse than others? And the answer given is, yes, some sins in themselves are more heinous in the sight of God than others. And the Puritan Thomas Vincent, who wrote a, explanation and commentary on the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, explains this answer. And he, he explains it by saying, uh, he gives these examples, and he says, for sins against the first table of the law are worse than sins against the second table of the law. So he's talking about the Ten Commandments. The first half of the Ten Commandments are, are, are commandments in relation to God. The second uh, half of the Ten Commandments are in relation to one another. And Thomas Vincent is saying, yes. Yes, one's worse. It's worse to sin against God than it is against man. But then he distinguishes again. He says, but then even within the second table of, of the law, the second half of the Ten Commandments, some sins are more heinous than others. So murder, for example, is, is often more heinous than adultery. Adultery is more heinous than theft. Theft is more heinous than coveting. And then he goes on from there, and he explains... Also, or in a third way, sins against the gospel are more heinous than sins against the law or sins against what God commands in the Old Testament. Sins against the gospel are more heinous than against the law. And his reasoning is, sins against the gospel are committed against the greatest light that ever did shine upon men and the greatest love and grace of God that was ever shown unto men. And therefore, the punishment of gospel sinners will be greater than the punishment of the most notoriously wicked heathens. And to ground his answer there, he points to Matthew 11, where Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, but I tell you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. 
there is uh, a different level of revelation that has been given, and the penalties are proportion, proportional to the level of revelation that has been rejected. So although all sins lead us, leave us guilty before God and deserving of judgment, some sins are more weightier than others. There are, it appears, many shades of black, and some shades are darker than others. So if death was the just penalty for, for rejecting God's revelation in the law in the Old Testament, how much worse a penalty is deserved for rejecting God's revelation in the gospel? That's the biblical example he points to in 28 and 29. And in verse 30, we have a theological example. In verse 30, we read, For we know him, so again, we're talking about the person of who God is here. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Uh, The author here quotes Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35 and 36. But he's telling us something about God here. He's making a statement about who God is. God is righteous. God is just. And God is holy. The prophet Habakkuk writes that God is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God's justice derives from his his holiness. Because he is holy, he must be just. As one pastor put it, God has the same attitude towards sin as a mother has toward a fatal disease that threatens her home. I thought, I liked how that captured it. He has the same attitude towards sin that a mother has toward a fatal disease that threatens her home. Psalm 7 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. So God reveals himself to us in many ways, and one of the ways that he reveals himself to us is according to his perfect righteousness. He is the judge, the final judge of every human being. And there's no one who is more qualified to judge us. There is no one who has a better knowledge of morality. There is no one who has a better knowledge of the law than God. There's no one who has a better knowledge of your sin than God. There is no one more capable of applying the appropriate penalties than God. And so we find in Scripture God takes His holiness very seriously and very personally, and He is the judge. So he says, vengeance is mine. It's it's a reminder that vengeance does not properly belong to us. Vengeance properly belongs to him. Now, all this might make you very uncomfortable. And it's supposed to make you uncomfortable. As, As human beings created in the image of God, whose consciences accuse us, even as much as we try to suppress them, God's perfect justice should make us uncomfortable. 
You're typically not, you're not very uncomfortable when you're speeding down uh, the highway just trying to get somewhere. The discomfort sets in when you become aware of the squad car sitting by the side of the road that has the speed gun aimed right at you. That's when things start feeling uncomfortable. Not that I've ever experienced that. But another reason verses like this make us uncomfortable is, is we don't perceive the full offense of our sin. We just do not comprehend the weight of our sin. We do not know how sinful we truly are. And in, in our sin, the Bible describes us as being like someone who is blind, like someone who lacks understanding. God is rightly, appropriately, the holy judge of all the earth. And the person who tramples underfoot the Son of God, who outrages the Spirit of grace, who profanes the blood of the covenant, can and should expect a worse punishment than found than what's found for breaking the law of Moses. He should expect to face the righteous judge of all the earth. He should, he should expect, if you look at verse 31, something fearful and terrible. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And perhaps one of the reasons it's so fearful, besides the fact that God is so capable and competent at delivering penalties, and besides the fact that those penalties are described with such terrible, vivid language in Scripture, it's so fearful because there is no one who can deliver you out of it. In human courts, if you're judged guilty in sentence, there's sometimes the opportunity to appeal. There's the hope of appeal. Maybe there's the hope sometimes of bribes you could make or pardons that could come. Maybe there's even the opportunity of escape. In the final court of heaven, everything is final. It's hard, to, it's hard to find anyone who makes the fearfulness more real than Jesus does in his own language. For example, Matthew 13, when he describes this, he says, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that is what the person who abandons Christ should anticipate. That is what you should anticipate should you decide to do so. So what should we do? What should we do? These are weighty things to consider. Judgment is real. We know it's real. Our hearts cry out for justice. Every human being has a sense of Justice, justice is not some evolutionary virus that has just temporarily afflicted the human consciousness. Judgment is real because there is a real objective moral standard. There is actually a moral law. There is a day of reckoning that's coming that Scripture describes as the day of the Lord. Judgment is real and judgment is fearful. So what should we do? 
The most natural response to this text you might take this morning is, I need to stop sinning. I need to stop sinning fast. I mean, look what it says. For if we go on sinning, all that remains is a fearful expectation of of judgment. Is that what the author of Hebrews is, is trying to get you to do? Stop sinning right now. Well, you do, you do need to stop sinning. I need to stop sinning. We, we have a huge sin problem. God feels righteous indignation for sin every day, and we sin every day. So God, God He does want you to stop sinning. The author of Hebrews wants you to stop sinning. I want you to stop sinning. But is that the proper response to this text? That is not the immediate proper response to this text. And the reason for that is because if you leave today and your plan is to stop sinning, the first thing you're going to need is a list. You're actually going to need two lists. You're going to need a list of everything you need to stop doing. And then you're going to need a second list Stable to that one that has everything you need to start doing. All right? And if that's what you want, I've got a 10-point list for you that was delivered to an old man on Mount Sinai thousands of years ago, that's, if that's what you want. But once you have your list, you, one of two things are going to happen when you leave here with that list. You're either going to hate, begin to hate the list and hate the God who gave you that list because you can't keep it, and then you're just going to keep going on sinning. Or if that doesn't happen, you might do the alternative, which is you'll modify the list. You'll modify the list. But guess what? It's a sin to modify the list, and then you're just sinning anyway. You end up in the exact same place. So if you leave today determined to stop sinning, and that's the plan, you're doomed. You're doomed. But the good news is that isn't what the author of Hebrews is encouraging us to do. What is the solution if you read verses 26 through 31 and they terrify you? What is the solution? Well, we could go anywhere, but let's just go up one paragraph. Look at verses 19 through 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. The author of Hebrews has spent 10 chapters telling us God has a solution for sin. He is a solution for sinners. He is a solution for lawbreakers. He is a solution for people who are guilty, for people who have sinned deliberately, for people who are caught in persistent, ongoing sin. God has a solution, and the solution is the perfect and all-sufficient righteousness of His only begotten Son. That is His solution for sin. Christ is the full and final revelation of God. Christ is the true and better Adam who has one life, who has achieved life for his people, not 
death. Christ is the true and better Moses who leads his people to the promised land of rest. Christ is the true and better priest who stands and mediates our relationship with God and leads us in worship. Christ is the full and final sacrifice who atoned for our sins. Our sins, not in part, but the whole. And Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, which brings the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is a seal and a guarantee that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. It's a guarantee that you will stop sinning. Christ is the full and final solution to all of our needs. So at this point in redemptive history, according to Hebrews, there's only two things that remain. This word remain that we see in verse 26. It's used twice in the book of Hebrews. So look at 26. We go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So the implication there is all that remains is is judgment. A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire, fire that will consume the adversary. So it's either judgment... That's what remains. Or, what's described in Hebrews 4.9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. According to the book of Hebrews, only two things remain. It's either Sabbath rest or it's divine judgment. And the way we attain Sabbath rest is not through the law. It's through Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God who had lived and died and rose again so that we could be forgiven and so that we could be made holy and so that we could stop sinning. So maybe you're saying, that's all you're giving us? That's all you're going to give us? What, what should I do? What, I want to do something. I want to take this seriously. I, I, I really do want to stop sinning. Maybe you're even saying, I'm worried I might be the person described In these verses, what should I do? And if you want something practical to start doing, again, just look at the verses that follow there. It's just just what comes right before. Let us draw near with a true heart. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. If you want something to do, don't jump over Christ and start doing. That's, that is the, that's, again, that's the recipe for disaster and doom. But clinging to Christ, this is what this is telling you to do. Cling to Christ. Cling to all that He is. Draw near to God. Don't, don't, don't neglect God. Don't lean away from God. Draw near to God. He is a judge, but you can draw near in Christ. Hold fast to the confession of your hope. Cling to all that you know to be true. Seek to know more about what God says. Keep seeking a greater greater knowledge of of the truth. And stir up. Don't neglect Christian community. Don't neglect gathering with the saints for worship. Don't neglect encouraging your brothers and sisters in Christ. We all come here because we need something. But come because someone else might need something, and that other, someone else might be the something else they need is you. But do it all because Christ is already in the Holy of Holies for you. 
Do it all on the basis of his shed blood. This warning is a real warning. It is a weighty warning. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But in God's amazing kindness, a great high priest is currently in heaven praying for his people. And he is praying that God will keep you even through warning passages like this in Hebrews. Let's pray. Father, passages of your word like this can shake us. They can disturb us. And you probably mean for them to do so. Father, thank you that you have promised to keep us and preserve us and perfect us. Father, help us to hate our sin and to put it to death by your grace. Father, we thank you for Christ who shed his own blood for our sins, our sins not in part, but the whole, so that we can sing, praise the Lord, it is well with my soul. All because of Christ. Father, we thank you that that is true at all times. In every moment of peace, when sorrows like sea billows roll, though Satan should tempt us, and though trials should come, Father, would you keep us and guide us as we draw near to you, as we hold fast the confession of our hope, and as we sing to one another, it is well with our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.